Blog Talk Radio. Good morning. This is Attorney Vince Davis, and this is Get Your Kids Back Now. This show is dedicated to keeping families together and to fighting the tyranny of CPS and DCFS social workers. A secondary purpose of the show is to educate parents and relatives or to at least show them where to get the necessary information for their fight. The final purpose of the show is to remind the people that change can be effectuated at the ballot box, at the state and federal levels. Let us unite, vote, and elect those who will make the necessary changes. Good morning, all. Um, Today's show, we're going to focus on uh, hopefully two types of hearings. Uh, The first type of hearing we talked a little bit about last week, and it's the six-month review hearing. And we're going to try to focus on what's called the 366.26 hearing, which is the final hearing where uh, the social worker tries to terminate the parent's uh, rights if the child isn't returned. First, I want to mention something. I got a lot of questions, email questions about this during the week. And uh, someone had asked me, um, what are the three, four biggest mistakes a person makes when they come in contact with a CPS agent or DCFS agent, uh, basically a social worker, who is coming to investigate and possibly take your children away and possibly uh, get the police involved, where you may end up in jail or uh, being prosecuted for a criminal case? That doesn't always happen, but it happens enough that I think I should talk about it. So the first big mistake people make is that they talk to the social worker. Now, I've been criticized by colleagues for giving this advice, but after being a lawyer for almost 31 years and doing juvenile dependency uh, probably more than 27 years, um, I want to tell you that it is never... I shouldn't say never. In most cases, it is not advantageous for you to talk to the social worker. And what happens is is that people who are not used to social workers believe that they can out-talk, out-think a social worker. And they also believe the social worker will do what they believe is fair. Well, social workers are highly educated and highly trained individuals. Um, They are trained at this job and to investigate possible child abuse. And in a lot of cases, I get complaints where social workers have exaggerated what people have said. I get complaints that social workers have not um, told the truth and they're reporting to the judge. And it's just a big mistake for you to talk to the social worker. For example... What if you talk to a social worker and the social worker misquotes you? What if you talk to the social worker and the social worker exaggerates? What if you talk to the social worker and the social worker outright tells something that's false? Does that ever happen? Well, yes. Um, Part of our practice, we also uh, sue social workers for civil rights violations. And in a case about a year ago, I took the deposition of a social worker who is now a supervisor 
at the Department of Children and Family Services in Los Angeles County. In that deposition, the social worker admitted to filing documents and declarations to a federal court that were not true. And she testified at the deposition that she knew they weren't true. So if you think a social worker won't misquote you, exaggerate, or lie in a report, um, you should think again. I tell people, look, there's no advantage for you to talk to the social worker. And if, you, and if it's not going to be an advantage, you shouldn't talk to the, to the social worker. At best, it's going to be neutral or it's going to be negative. And I can assure you that the social worker will use whatever you say against you. And I get so many people coming to me telling me, hey, you know, um, I thought the social worker would understand and I opened up to him or her. That's rarely a good idea. Now, is it ever a good idea to talk to the social worker? I'd have to say yes in very rare, rare occasions. So let's stick with the general rule. Don't talk to the social worker. Now, the social worker can get a warrant to come to your home, to come in and inspect your home, and the social worker can also get a warrant to talk to your children, inspect your children for child abuse, and they can get a warrant to take your children away from you. However, they can never get a warrant to talk to you as a parent or a relative. Never. So it's America. You don't have to talk to governmental agents like social workers, and I suggest that you don't. If you feel like you have to explain something, you know, we've all seen it in TV. We've all seen it in the movies. I suggest that you lawyer up and give a lawyer a call, preferably a lawyer who practices in this area, and ask for their help and advice. A lot of lawyers will tell you to go ahead and talk to the social worker. Um, and I can't criticize their advice because I don't know each factual and specific uh, occasion uh, that you're going to come in contact with the social worker. But my general advice is don't talk to the social worker. You have no legal obligation to do it. A lot of clients say, well, Mr. Davis, if I don't t- talk to the social worker, they're going to tell the judge that I was not cooperative. There's an argument about whether your cooperation can or cannot be used against you, but let's assume that it can. My belief is if you talk to a social worker on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being the worst, it's going to be a 10. If you don't talk to a social worker on a scale of 1 to 10, it's going to be a 5. So what do you want, a 5 or a 10? Those are your only two choices. Rule number one. Don't talk to the social worker. Rule number two, don't talk to the police. Police are only arriving on the scene, in many cases, to investigate a possible crime. The crime being some type of child abuse or child neglect. They also come to, sometimes with social workers, to help enforce a uh, warrant. For example, a warrant to remove your children. Don't talk to the police. You've seen it on TV. You've seen it on movies. Lawyer up. 
it's your right not to talk to the police. It's your constitutional right not to talk to the police because it's the same for social workers. What if you get misquoted? What if you, the police officer exaggerates? What if they outright don't tell the truth? I'm going to ask you a question. In your life, have you ever heard of an occasion, probably multiple occasions, where someone has alleged the, social, the police officer has lied in the report? My point exactly. So don't talk to police officers. Call your attorney, lawyer up. You have the constitutional right to not incriminate yourself. So that's rule number two. Rule number three is when you go to talk to an attorney about a CPS or DCFS uh, case, make sure that you get an attorney that's experienced in this area. And by the way, this isn't family law. Family law attorneys usually are not experienced in this area. Not all the time. There's some attorneys that do both. I do both. Don't talk to the criminal attorney. This is not a criminal case. It's a juvenile dependency case. And if you're going to Google it, Google juvenile dependency lawyer, defense lawyer. That's the type of attorney that you need to talk to. Now, I would have to say there are not a lot of them. There are not a lot here in Los Angeles County. And what I mean by a lot of them, there are court-appointed attorneys. And if you use a court-appointed attorney, that's fine. But you won't talk to that attorney until you go to court on your first day. I'm talking about when you first come in contact with a social worker, which is could be three, five, seven days before you ever go to court or more. So you want to make sure that you pick the right type of lawyer. And if you do, and if you Google juvenile dependency lawyer or defense lawyer or attorney, you're going to find those people that practice in that area. Sometimes people think, well, this is regarding custody and visitation of my children, so family law lawyers will know what to do. Like I said, not usually. So don't make that first mistake. I can tell you of a case that um, I did, and it comes to my mind, it was several, several months ago, maybe a year or so ago. The client was contacted by Children's Services, uh, the Department of Children and Family Services here in Los Angeles County. And she was smart enough to realize that she needed an attorney to go with her and to deal with these social workers before any type of juvenile case was ever filed. So she called up and she found an attorney who happened to be a family law attorney. Unfortunately, he had little to no experience in the area, but, you know, he took on the engagement and he went down to the meeting at the social worker's office with the client. And then when he got down there, things went haywire because the social workers were telling him things that he wasn't sure of. And um, the, the, they basically told him, hey, you can't be part of the meeting. 
And instead of telling the client, well, there's going to be no meeting, let's leave, he let the client go in, have a meeting with the social workers. At that meeting, um, the social, a social worker misquoted the client and perhaps exaggerated what the client said. And they ended up taking away her children. She eventually found me. We went to court, helped her out, and, you know, all ended well. But that's the problem when you hire an attorney that's not really familiar or an expert in this area. So those are the, that's rule number three, hire the type of attorney that's an expert in this area. So these, those are the three rules. Don't talk to social workers. Don't talk to police. Hire the right type of attorney. Now, there's a couple things that I wanted to talk about about the six-month uh, hearing. And after the disposition hearing, which is, in my opinion is the most important hearing um, in the juvenile dependency system, your case is statutorily, by law, set for a review hearing in six months. Now, people ask me, hey, you mean I can't get my child back at work? You know, until six months? No, you can get your child back before six months by filing something called a 388 petition. A 388 petition is, I think it's a JV 180 form. You can Google that. Uh, WIC, Welfare and Institutions Code, Section 388, or Google California Judicial Form JV 180. Okay, we're at the six-month hearing. I'll give you an example of a, a six-month hearing that's coming up in Los Angeles where a client just hired me to do it. So at the beginning of September, the judge has set a date called the receipt of the report date. It's where you show up, you get the report, and you review it, and you come back another day, sometimes which has already been set, you know, hopefully, you know, a couple of weeks out, um, where you come back with your witnesses and your documents to prove that the child should be returned. Now, at the first six-month date, they call that a 366.21E hearing. The child, the rule is that the child must be returned to you unless the social worker can prove by a preponderance of, of evidence that you pose some type of risk or detriment to the child. Now, if you think about it, the social worker has to prove this. You don't have to prove that you should get the child back. But what happens is because the social worker files a report and you usually don't file anything, which is not a good idea, by the way. Um, the social worker will have met the burden if her or his recommendation is not to return the child. So what do you do? Well, you have a trial. And at that trial, you're going to have to bring forth evidence to show the judge that the social worker is wrong or has not met the burden of proof. You cannot go to the six-month hearing and plan to argue, have your attorney argue, 
that you should get the child back. In my opinion, in 95, 99% of those cases, when you rely on your attorney's argument, you're probably going to lose. The reason? You don't have any evidence. Attorney argument is not evidence in the juvenile dependency system. None of them is evidence in any system. So attorney argument. Don't rely on it. You want to make sure, you know, a week to 10 days before the hearing, after you've read the report, that you bring in the witnesses that can testify on your behalf. I'll give you an example, another case that I have. Social worker at the six-month review hearing date is recommending the child or that the children not be returned to my client, who is the mother. Um, I sat down with the mother about a week or two ago, and I asked her, she was a new client, I said, well, have you done the court-ordered plan? Yes, Mr. Davis, I've done everything. Are you sure? Yes, Mr. Davis, I've done everything. Well, let me see all your completion certificates. Let me see your progress reports. Let me see your receipts for drug counseling and uh, drug testing. And she pulled out of her satchel, her bag, everything. She had done everything. And I asked her two important questions. I said, number one, does the social worker know that you've done all of this? She said, yeah, the social worker knows. I said, well, how did you give it to her? She said, well, I mailed it to her. And by the way, I suggest that when you send social worker documents, you email them to her. Creates a digital record. Pretty hard for a social worker to say, oh, I didn't get that email. I have heard social workers say, oh, the mother didn't give me those documents, or I never received those in the mail, or I never got that from the drug counseling facility, email. And in Los Angeles County, there was a big to-do about whether um, parents could get emails of social workers. And the decision came down that you can get the, the email of the social worker. And by the way, these are public officials. Their email is not confidential. So demand to get the email so that you can send the information to the uh, social worker and have a receipt. So back to the case. Since she had done everything, I asked her, I said, well, the only other argument that the social worker could make is that you haven't progressed enough in the, in the class or counseling in order for you to get the child back or children back. And she said, well, it's funny you should say that. My uh, social worker is saying that my individual counselor um, is telling her that I'm not ready to get the children back. I said, well, let me see the letters, the progress letters that she had received from the counselor. And I read the letters, and the letters were glowing. Uh, so that day with the client sitting in here, I called the counselor. And the counselor called back, and... Um, I asked the counselor, I said, well, you know, I've read your, your reports, your, your progress letters. Um, how's my client doing in counseling? And then it was, oh, Mr. Davis, I can't talk to you. We don't have a release of information. So, okay, I'll fix that. So we got the release, and I finally talked to the, the counselor. 
By the way, that's not a good sign when the counselor doesn't, when your own client's counselor doesn't want to talk to you. Anyway, I got the counselor on the, on the line and said, well, how's my client doing in counseling? Doing great, Mr. Dave. I said, you know, I read your, your reports. Uh, they're all glowing. I said, did you tell the social worker that my client wasn't ready to get the children back? She said, no. I said, you never told the social worker that? She said, well, the social worker told me that. And I didn't respond. Maybe she took my silence as being in agreement with her. And I said, well, that's a big deal. I said, now I have to ask you to come down to court to testify for my client and explain to the judge why you didn't say that to the to the uh, social worker and what you really think. Oh, Mr. Davis, I'm busy that day. I, you know, I uh, have a lot of patience that day. I said, well, I can make sure that you you have a subpoena so that that will mandate you to come. Oh, Mr. Davis, can't you just rely on my reports? Can't you just rely? Can I call? Can I call in on the phone and testify? No, can't call in. Got to come into court and you got to testify. So that's what I mean about bringing in the witnesses that you're going to need to rebut or refute the social worker's report. You don't bring those witnesses in, it's likely that the social worker's, excuse me, that the therapist's report won't come into evidence. And even if it did, in the example that I gave you, they're not going to be sufficient to rebut the social worker's claim that the therapist said, mom's not ready to get the children back. I know that's a little like how many angels dance on the head of a pen type of argument, but that's what it comes down to. So you've got to have those witnesses there. In most cases, if you have reports and documents from your court-ordered case plan, most people, most minors' attorneys and county counsel will allow that into evidence even though the preparer of that report is not there. However, technically, in my opinion, it's not admissible evidence. And you have to have the preparer of the report either there or on call to come down and say, hey, yes, I wrote this report. That's my signature. And I said mom's doing a great job in her counseling or in her parenting class or in her anger management class, or her drug counseling class. So make sure that you have those people subpoenaed and on call. And make sure you have those documents. Make sure that you talk to your attorney at least a week, in my opinion, or at least a few days before the trial so that you guys can get on the same page. Right now, I've been talking almost a almost a half hour. I'm going to take our first call. Um, it's from area code 562, ending in 17. Good morning, uh, Vincent. Good morning. How are you? Oh, I'm doing, uh, doing okay. I'd like to share a story, um, what's been happening with, with me. Um, I, I'll start off. I'll try to go through it really quick here and maybe share with our readers 
our viewers, listeners, that um, what's happened to me is that I've done everything wrong day one. Um, I've been trying to get my three children back um, for uh, three months, and uh, what's uh, in my case social worker they brought out the hello yeah can you hear me yeah no you me better in and, I don't know much better you were going um, in and out why don't you start okay can you hear me better now yes you hear, okay so um they brought everybody over. It was like 20 people. And uh, at that time, I had uh, picked up I had picked up my um, uh, young son, who was nine at the time, and uh, he was uh, completely shocked with all these people all over the place. And uh, uh, we went through, at that time, we were, I was going through economic hard times. I lived in a very affluent neighborhood. And uh, so, and I, I had a nice salary at one, one time, but I've been going through economic times, and then my personal family was going through uh, stages of, of the dying process. So I was going through a lot, and there's a lot going on late here. And uh, we, we started the investigation, and as it goes on, I thought by being open with these public officials, I'll be honest with them, but uh, as I regret now, I should have followed your first step is, is to wait for a search warrant or get a hold of an attorney right away. Without an attorney and a search warrant, I pretty much opened myself up to a disaster. And, um, um, of course, economically, I couldn't afford an attorney at that time anyway. And so I um, went through the, the whole process, and at first I started telling them exactly what the truth was. I told them I thought at first they would um, be fair with you. I thought they I believe that the government, and I guess it's my second mistake because the first time I dealt with the government state of California, I lost $63 million of the contract work. Uh, they gave me IOUs. But um, anyway, uh, you know, the, the police detective was doing his thing. And it, just, it was a very, a very unpleasant experience. And I started at first to send them emails and started saying things that. Uh, they were trying to set me up. They just really just set you up. And I never would think that social workers would lie to the degree they have lied and continue to lie to this day. I mean, three years later, they're still making up stories. They go back and change the review reports in the headings. Um, and uh, the unfortunate thing, it's really hurt my two boys and it's hurt our daughter because we've lost our daughter. She was convinced after living seven months with a foster care that was there to live with, with them than be with us. And so that's been the hardest thing lately to go through uh, with me and my wife. We stuck through it all. Um, we immediately got through all the things that the demands they had. The judge, we thought would be a fair judge. We didn't know he was corrupt. And his background was doing um, auto claims. And so I don't know how he ever got appointed to that position, but he got appointed to there with his background. And the thing we find out that social services uses third parties. What I mean by that is that they have counselors, they have uh, 
people that are supposed to be neutral about things, but they're being paid by social services. The whole thing is it's all run by social services. Everybody's being paid, so they have to do what social services tells them to do. So the, the case just got like a nightmare. It was just it was a nightmare. One instance in my case was the social worker lied blankly um, for a restraining order um, that I suppose he violated. And she insisted I first I was living in the apartment, then she said I was hiding in the apartment, then she said I was in the alleyway of the apartment, then she said, and she changed the story so many times, and this went on for a whole year. This went on for um, uh, almost 15 months, and uh, uh, I incurred, you know, $15,000 of lawyer fees, and uh, the, the whole thing was just uh, a nightmare. And then finally, at the filing end, the prosecution finally gets around, because we were demanding to have a trial, they ended up, um, uh, prosecution dropped it. They were trying to do wheels and deals and say, if you give us some money, we'll make it go away. I have never seen so much corrupt in the criminal system, in the dependency system, the way that uh, that the people are, and then the uh, the public defenders. There may be a good one, but I only met one, and there's like nine of them, and they really get you in a lot of trouble. They try to make you do wheels and deals, and again, they're working for the social services. So a public defender, I know it's, it's, it's no expense, but it's a wrong idea. What you need to do is somehow put together the funds and have someone like yourself, Vincent's an excellent attorney, be able to uh, get it and nip it in the beginning. Because if we had gone in the beginning, I am swear today that this thing would never have traveled this long. We'd have our family back to, together. The criminal part, they took me to criminal. They, they took my family, my wife and I, to criminal. And it was it was it was the, the criminal part and the dependency was like a mirror thing. They were charging the same thing. And with the criminal part, um, I had uh, thought on the advice of my attorney that it would be best to uh, uh, do a plea deal. So I did a plea deal for what I thought was a lesser uh, damage to my record and plus I didn't want my family. I know I was not guilty of what the criminal was charging. But uh, in order to uh, save the, the family going through a very horrendous trial and uh, everything there, I thought it would be best to, to compromise and settle for less. So knowing, not knowing that down the end that's going to backfire. Not only that, the things that make you do is unreal. I mean, the service hours, all the things that make you do. And it's, 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 it's like it was the hard thing. And people would be asking, what the hell did you do? It wasn't drugs. It wasn't stealing. It wasn't a criminal activity. The criminal activity that they're trying to equate on is, hey, you are having belongings from your parents that were dying, and you can't keep them in your house because you don't have the room, and you got to somehow put them in storage. We don't care if you're economic. I mean, it was the most – to this day, I still don't understand is that no one was helping. No one was coming out and saying, oh, yes – we want to help you. We want to help you get this uh, the stuff out of the house so it may not endanger you. My kids were found to be physically fit, well-dressed, well-educated, achieving great scores, uh, not having problems in school. One of my child did have a bullying problem, but that bullying problem suddenly became a dad problem. And uh, it was interesting how the family, you always say get 
family support and so forth. Well, my parents are so old, they don't, they, you know, they can't really help that much. Um, and uh, my wife's family end up turning against her. All of them ganged up on her and told stories that are most, uh, it was like we thought we were in a different world. She later discovered that she had all these issues that uh, in the past were detrimental to her. People had really hurt her. And uh, it's been the hardest thing for her to go through because not only has she lost, we've lost her daughter, she's lost a mother, a father, a sisters, brothers, and uh, an older daughter that, that we have. It was just, it's been, I don't, I can't say what the positive things are. And so coming to the end of this is that right now we thought at Christmas Eve, the first time we returned because he emancipated, he became 18. He said, I've had enough of this. I want out of this system. I want to come home to mom and dad. The second son, you know, who said from day one, nothing, he wouldn't get a chance to talk because nine at the time, they kept him, you know, he got abuse in the foster care system. I can tell you the group home doesn't work. The foster care system doesn't work because they're in for the money. It's the money thing. That's the whole, the, the whole thing behind everything. We found out from the top down, it's the money thing. It's a, it's a billions of dollar business. And the longer they keep people in the system, the more money they can milk out of the federal government, milk out of the public thing. So uh, it's, it's like, so now what they're doing is that, we had our other son return to Christmas, but they decided to milk us now for another nine more months. They're milking our son now, and now they're talking about new charges. They're talking about things that never existed. They sent an email over that says, I have to go to conjoint therapy to address these issues. And these were never even discussed. They were never in the beginning of the thing, and it's, it's horrendous. So here we are. We're next. We got to wait till September. And they're doing it purposely because my son starts school, and they're going to drag him down there. He's going to miss school. He's, you know, all my kids. Just, it's like, you know, my oldest son. I'm just so amazed that he's that he's that he's, you know, stuck in there and done such a tremendous time. But I, I don't know when this is going to end. It's now slated for September, and I know the new social worker would have like five of them, and it gets worse. It just, it's just unbelievable. Um. And I, I don't know how it's going to end. I really don't know. I, we already know we lost our daughter, and we don't know if they're going to drag this on for another year. And it's just, it's like I can't work because I got two restraining orders. That the second one was ridiculous. The other restraining was four years. Um, you know, it's it's like uh, I have still formal probation, and it's it's all because I agreed to something on a scale that says I had a home that was unsafe to my children. Because of my economic situation, I had a home that could be unsafe. It wasn't proud to be unsafe. It could be because the boxes were four feet high because there was this clutter from furniture and things from, you know, another family household. And I tried to have it outside. But uh, the community I live in, it's a, it's, a, it's a CCNR. It's a very fluent community. You can't have things stacked outside with a tarp over it. So I was just uh, – I, I, and, I, again, I – I'm just trying to share with the listeners out there to wrap this up is that you need to have a solid attorney for help. You need to get that base in there. You don't know the system out there. It is corrupt. It is bad. There is, I mean, I may have been the most unfortunate one to get it, but every step of the way I've had um, supposedly people to help you to lie because they're being hired by social services. Um, and so right now as it stands, 
Um, they're trying to get rid of the two restraining orders. They're trying to get stop the informal probation, and we're trying to get our son back. But uh, as I speak today, I still have the restraining orders, and my son is slated for a court appearance in September. And I knew the new social worker is going to say, "Well, he's not going to get joint therapy because what I said in the in the thing she thinks is right." I said, "Go look at the first report. The first report didn't say what you're saying in this email. It's absurd that I'd have to." Anyway, um, I want to thank you, Vincent, and uh, thank you for letting me share my story with you and the listeners. Well, thank you for calling. I do have a question for you, if you don't mind. Sure. You know, in sharing your story, you said something about a social worker um, lying and then uh, bringing a criminal case against you for violating a restraining order. Can you tell me a little bit about, yeah. a little bit more about that? Yeah, this is a very interesting thing, is that when you um, get a restraining order, it's always for 100 yards, and they try to correctly name the people. And I already had a restraining order because of the criminal case, because in the rules or regulations, if you are convicted of a misdemeanor or you agree to be convicted of a misdemeanor, you have to have a restraining order, and you have to have formal probation. So it very clearly says a restraining order, stay 100 yards away from the... Uh, uh, the children in their place of school, whatever it may be, unless you have a prearranged um, social uh, services uh, visit that's set up with monitoring or whatever the case may be. And so um, I uh, uh, was going along, and what happened was is I finally had to leave my house because I lost my house, you know, home, and so um we were in the process of moving some of the things over. And what I would do is that I was uh, had a, a meeting point that was about 137 yards away from the place. It was safe enough out of the way. And um, one day I was just taking some pets over, helping with my wife with the pets so, you know, the goldfish don't jump out of the tank or the lizard doesn't get too nervous, whatever the case would be. And so I get dropped off. You know, easily about 137 yards, which is more than the, the, the requirement there. And so I would sit there and wait for her to come back with the car and do another run. And we had done this on a Sunday. And the social worker was always dogging me. They, 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 it's funny they have the money to have people come over there. So what she did is that she saw me, and I was at that time um, – walking down to where the, the bus stop, there's a pickup for a bus there. And uh, I caught her in the corner of my eye, and she looked at me, and, and of course, she made a kind of U-turn with her car, and she's waving her hand to come and see her. I said, I can't go over there. That would put me within 100 yards of the plate, and I have to go. And I was not trying to talk to her, but I was being nice. That's my MO. I'm always nice, polite, and so forth. So she comes there and says, do you know you're within 100 yards? I said, no, ma'am, I'm not within 100 yards. And, uh, um, and I said, this is ridiculous. Uh, you, you, you've got to stop this. And so I continued to walk to a bus stop, took the bus back. So right away, I called you. I called my attorney. I called my probation person on Sunday. I messaged this. And on Monday, I talked again. And uh, what took place, I got a call from the police force. Yeah, were you out there? And blah, 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 blah. I said, no, I wasn't. And, uh, and the story 
you know, a year later, the police couldn't find anything that Lizane just said. And, and uh, so what the social worker did is she first tried to get local police to cite me for violating restraint order. That didn't work. So because social services has hands within the government, they went ahead and talked to the prosecutor in Santa, uh, Santa Ana and, uh, and got a, uh, a crime. Well, it takes, you know, six months for you even to come to the, to the court. I mean, it's, it's like, it's, it's, it's like it's ridiculous. They drag it on. So I'm sitting here showing up every month, you know, at about a thousand dollars a visit to sit there and see this thing get dragged out. It's almost, it's like they sit there and they have to sit there and you just repeat month after month. And the social worker kept getting contacted. She kept changing her story. Her first story was, I was, I had Mr. Pace inside the apartment. And uh, my son was in the apartment. He said, no, he wasn't there. My wife was uh, there. And uh, so um, she said that you're violating. Oh, by the way, right before this all happened, she got a second restraining order. And it was a social service restraining order because the first one she didn't feel was good enough. And the second one, it listed instead of my daughter, which she should have been, listed my wife and my two boys. And it said the same thing, but it added the apartment and it added the school. And the first restraining was very clear enough, but they just, they were determined to get me because I fought the system. I told the truth. I said, you guys are lying. I have emails to support that. I, you know, I, I have things that you guys, I mean, I went to the top. I went to the guy in charge of CPS. I went to the top. And he thought I was convicted of all these crimes. He was shocked when I said, no, when you see that. And so when you have high-level people that are, that are thinking you're something else, it ended up being just backfired. And so this went on month after month. And a year later, he, um, uh, it finally, they were trying to have me pay uh, money, like $500 restitution or I don't know, or something there. I said, I'm not guilty of this. I'm not going to do this anymore. And so by we waiting out, it finally the case was dropped. But it hasn't dropped the second restraining order. It hasn't, uh, you know, it, it hasn't changed anything. I'm still in the same boat I was uh, three years ago. Okay, well, thank you for sharing that story. I appreciate it. All right, thank you, Vincent. Thank you for all you do. Thank you. I wanted him to talk about that second case, or not that case where the social worker apparently lied about him violating a restraining order um, and him going through a criminal case for what seemed, he said, for about a year. Um, that's the type of thing that's a civil rights violation where the social worker and or the county can be sued for violating their civil rights. And probably his wife and children also have a claim um, because apparently this has stopped him from having visits during that period of time and subjected him to a criminal court case where he wasted time, energy, and money. Uh, and the district attorney, when he wouldn't take a deal, just dropped the case. Because it was a case they couldn't prove. I mean, the social worker apparently had told 
several different stories about where she saw him located violating the restraining order. And in the first report where she saw him and claimed it was a violation of the restraining order, he was not violating the restraining order. So those are the types of cases. You know, people ask me, what type of case can you sue the social worker? And generally what I tell them is, number one, the first type of case is where they detain your child or children from you without a court order or a warrant. The Fourth Amendment to the United States Constitution and also, I believe, to the California Constitution allows you to keep your children unless there is a court order or warrant issued by a judge that the social worker can come and take your children away from you. Being a parent is an important constitutional right, and the Constitution requires that they get a court order to, uh, to deprive you of that right. There is an exception to that rule, and that's called the exigent circumstances exception. And that basically means if the social worker sees uh, that the child is being abused, um, there's an emergency and social worker can't, you know, take a half a day or a day to go get a warrant, and then the social worker has the right to detain your child without a warrant. Those cases are very rare, and um, they're the first type of case that we do in suing social workers, so without a warrant. The second type of case that we handle that um, we sue social workers in counties, and this is probably the most uh, or the biggest type of case, number of cases that we have where the social worker has lied in the reports um, to the judge or lied on the witness stand during a trial. So I had a case one time where I represented a woman and there was a statement in the original detention report for the first hearing that the minor's therapist told the social worker that the child was in danger by living and being with the mother. And at the detention hearing, um, I recall that the judge specifically mentioned that in making his ruling to detain the child. Well, the case was set for trial, a lot of things happened, and I ended up having to call the social worker on the phone. I just wanted to verify. Actually, one of my paralegals called, and we wanted to verify some other things about the case. And just in passing, we, we asked her, um, did you tell the social worker that, that the child was in danger of living with the mother? And you know what the social worker I mean, you know what the therapist said? No, I never said that to the social worker. As a matter of fact, I've never met or talked to the social worker. And I'm like, what? I said, well, it's quoted right here in the report. She says, well, that's not accurate. I've never met or talked to the social worker on the phone. And I said, are you sure? Said, yeah, I'm positive. No one's ever called me about this case. Is that no one's ever called you? Not even in the beginning? She goes, no, not even in the beginning. No one's ever called. So that that's what we call 
aligned social worker. Um, and that's the second type of case we do for civil rights violations. You know, uh, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals here in this Ninth District, where California is, federal appeals courts, have said recently, a year or two ago, you can find this on uh, YouTube because it's, I'm, I'm laughing because it was kind of the craziest thing I've ever seen. They videotape all these oral arguments now at the Court of Appeal for the Federal Circuit. And the Ninth Circuit held in a case, social workers can't lie in juvenile dependency cases. But the funny thing was, about it was when you watch the oral argument, the attorney for Orange County, who was being sued at the time for a lying social worker, uh, argued to the Ninth Circuit that social workers should be able to lie and not be sued. And it was a diverse group of justices who heard that uh, oral argument. And by diverse, I mean, you know, politically, political appointments, conservative, you know, moderate, liberal, what have you. And all three of the judges were flabbergasted that that attorney would stand up in a courtroom and say social workers should be able to lie under oath or not under oath and that they shouldn't be able to be sued because of it. And um, I remember thinking that the young attorney, well, I don't know if she's young, but um, the woman attorney arguing that it seemed like Someone had paid her to sacrifice her integrity and her credibility to stand up in a court of law that was being videotaped, no doubt, and say that her client should be able to be to come to court and to lie, and then not be responsible for that. I'm saying lie. I'm not saying say something that was incorrect by mistake. Know that they should be able to be to lie. And if you're interested in watching that oral argument and the reaction of the judges when they heard this, um, I would uh, Google it. It's on YouTube, uh, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, tape, uh, they videotaped all their oral arguments. So um, you can Google it. I'm sorry I forget the name of the case. It's, you know, it's turned out to be a very famous case. And the name uh, slips in. But just Google or go to YouTube and, and put in line social workers. And that will come up. I found it that way before on YouTube, just searching. So you can go and look at that, and you can be astounded, as I was, that social workers can, you know, come to court and lie. The other thing that we sue social workers on is the, the injury to the child while in foster care. Now... Unfortunately, this happens more than we think. Happens frequently. And it's unfortunate because children are taken away from uh, families because sometimes they've been injured. Sometimes there's a risk of injury. No injuries actually happen. And then they're put in foster placement, and then they get injured. And uh, there's a special foster care fund 
that exists pay out uh, children to children who have been injured by their foster parents. Now, I've been involved in I've been involved in cases where children have been physically abused while in foster care, emotionally abused while in foster care, and sexually abused while in foster care. Yes, I said sexually abused while in foster care. So, um, you know, a lot of crazy things happen in foster care. Um, I remember sitting in a judge's chambers in the juvenile court and um, with all the attorneys, and my client was trying to get her teenage daughter back into her home. I think the child was about 13 or 14 years old. She was Caucasian, and she happened to be placed in a group home uh, placement where the population was mostly uh, African-American and Latino, and she was Caucasian. And the minor's attorney was telling us how the child was being basically harassed and beaten and things stolen. Um, you know, mainly because she was the only Caucasian child in this placement. And I was there arguing, trying to get the child released to my client, who had not done any of these things to the child. And I remember the judge looked at me and said, you know, I probably should be investigating where I place these children because it's not the safe haven that we always think it is. You know, people think, oh, we're going to take kids away from uh, parents and place them in foster placement, and they're going to be safe. Not true. Not true. Many years ago, I represented a woman, a foster parent, who uh, was being charged as causing the death of a foster child. The death of a foster child. And, you know, we probably, you don't hear it on the news every time, but Children are abused and injured in foster homes frequently. So um, those are the third types of cases that we handle uh, in civil rights cases. Okay, we're running out of time this morning. I want to quickly get to the 366.26 hearing. This is the death penalty hearing for parents in a juvenile dependency case. And unfortunately, um, the number one goal that uh, the social workers are focused on is terminating the parental rights at this stage of the case. A lot of people say that that goal is fueled by uh, money, about the compensation that the social worker gets or the county gets may terminate a parent's rights. The argument is, though, in court and in the law that the child hasn't been returned to the parent by the time of this hearing, which is generally 18 months or so, and that since the child hasn't been returned, the child deserves to be to have a permanent placement and therefore, they terminate the rights, which also terminates at this point all of the relatives' rights, 
grandma isn't grandma anymore. And the child is uh, placed up for adoption with the foster family. I was talking to a family yesterday, and this was the scenario. Uh, the child was taken from the mother. Uh, the mother has, still has, some psychological uh, problems and issues, and she wasn't able to care for the child. The child was placed with the mother's sister, placed with the maternal grandmother, and then subsequently uh, with the sister, so the maternal aunt. And they were taking care of the child, apparently just fine. And then something happened um, between the maternal grandmother and the social worker. Now, as the maternal relatives tell me, it was a personality dispute. But apparently it was presented to the court as the maternal grandmother not taking appropriate care of the child. You know, and what's the truth? I don't know. Maybe somewhere in between. But the sad thing has happened that the child was taken from the maternal grandmother and the aunt. And the aunt, by the way, a school teacher for special needs children. Uh, the child was taken from them and placed with the paternal grandmother. Now, the father happened to be in jail because he severely abused the mother. And the child was given to the paternal grandmother. And I'm not saying that the paternal grandmother should be blamed for anything, because she shouldn't. She didn't do anything. But her one crime, so to speak, was she hated the maternal side of the family because they were the cause, in her mind, of her child, the father, being in jail on a long state prison sentence. So the paternal grandmother doesn't let the maternal relatives visit. And the maternal grandmother adopts the child. She, the, the paternal grandmother adopts the child. She now becomes a mother. The maternal relatives, they're no longer relatives. Not only that, they don't get to visit the child anymore. So uh, that's a problem. You know, next week we're going to be uh, having a special guest, I believe, an attorney from, um, I think, Boston, Massachusetts, who's a specialist in CPS cases there. And I'm trying to arrange and firm up the date and the time that he'll call in. And he's going to be talking about um, cases there in Boston, Massachusetts. Um, if you have any questions, please give our office a call, 888-888-6582. That's 888 You can see us on the web at fightchildprotectiveservices.com. And you can also email me at v.davis at vincentwdavis.com. I want to thank everyone for listening. Remember, vote. Are you registered to vote? We have to elect those judges and politicians who will change the law and who will support families in their decisions when these CPS cases come in front of them. Um, and in a lot of places, you can register online, I understand. So there's no excuse that everybody should be registered to vote and exercising that. I want to thank everybody again for listening. We'll see you next week on the radio.